Let's uh, pray, shall we, as we come to look at that second passage, which you can find on page 1001 if you've closed your Bibles. Lord, we've said how we love to read your word, and whether that's the passage that's appointed to us or not, Lord, we, we long to hear what you have to say, say to us. And we pray now that you would give us ears to listen and hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. Help me as I preach. Help us as we listen to hear your words and to go out here changed and renewed for your kingdom's sake. Amen. So, Matthew 28. I wonder if you have ever thought about what your last words might be. Throughout history, people have um, jotted down uh, last words of noted individuals. Sometimes they've been quite stirring. Uh, when I was in Oxford, we got to it, taken on a history tour of Oxford, and uh, we, we went outside Balliol College, Oxford, and heard the words of uh, Bishop Hugh Latimer as he was burned at the stake. He said these stirring words, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Stirring stuff, isn't it, to uh, encourage the, uh, the Reformation troops. Sometimes last words have been quite witty. Um, this is attributed to Oscar Wilde. I don't know whether it really is true or not, but it's quite funny anyway. Apparently, he said, either this wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> quite funny. Don't know whether it's true or not. Sources differ. There we go. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, she used to say. Sometimes, last words can be a little bit unexpected. There was once a Greek philosopher called Anaxagoras who was also a headmaster. And just as he was reaching his deathbed, his uh, friends gathered round him, thinking that he was going to come out with some kind of profound quote about the existence of life or something like that. And instead, his final uh, croaks, really, were, uh, give the lads a holiday. There you go. Sometimes they're a bit unexpected. That wasn't what Anaxagoras' friends thought he was going to come out with. But whatever we say, last words matter because they often express either how somebody wants to be remembered or, more likely, of what is most important to them. And therefore, it's surely significant, isn't it, that Jesus' final instructions on earth, they're not technically his last words, obviously, because he is still alive, but his final instructions to us are to finish what he had begun, and we should pay attention to them. If you've been uh, with us over the summer in Trinity, you'll know that we've been looking at the uh, kingdom of God. We've had a series looking at different aspects of what the kingdom of God is all about. It's a big term, particularly for Matthew. And we've seen how Jesus is God's king. He's come to usher in his rule and to call the world to respond. And at this point in the story, the baton is passed on. It's a bit like those Olympic, uh, Olympic relays. The baton is being handed on. And the question now is, what does it look like to obey these final words of the Lord Jesus? And two things in particular stand out this morning. It's going to be a slightly shorter sermon, not quite a text message, but it is going to be slightly shorter. We have two things for us in particular that I think stand out for us. The first thing is that Jesus gives us a pattern to follow, and it is to make disciples. Look down with me, if you will, at verse uh, 19 and 20. Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Sometimes people's last wishes are a bit unclear. I don't know if you saw in the newspaper, um, a few, I think it was about a month ago, wasn't it? There was that story of the widow who had left in her will um, £520,000 
to the government who, were, who was in power at the time of her death to, quote, in their absolute discretion to use as they may think fit. And the story that broke was people were a bit unsure exactly what that meant, what, what, is, what, what does it mean to use it as they think fit, and frankly, who should be making the decisions in the first place. Things were a little bit unclear, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle all about it. Yet there isn't any such ambiguity, ambiguity even, sorry, with Jesus. His final command is very clear, isn't it? It is to make disciples of all nations. We quite often use the word disciple or discipleship in church. It's probably worth thinking a little bit about what it means. It's a big part of Matthew's Gospel in particular. And in fact, actually through the New Testament, um, the the word for disciple in Greek is mathetes, and it is used apparently 264 times in the Gospels and Acts alone. You can go and look that up if you don't believe me. I did, did check that from a reputable source. Originally, in the ancient Greek world, it meant somebody who was a pupil or an apprentice, you know, somebody who was learning a trade or was sitting under a a teacher of some sort. By Jesus' day, amongst the Jews, it was more often used to describe um, individuals who had committed themselves to being under a particular rabbi, to following him and to to living with him and sitting under his teachings. There was a saying that... that, um, if you, were, you should be covered in your rabbi's dust, the sense in which you should be sitting under them so closely that the dust from their feet should be on, on you. This mark of devotion. They were people who committed themselves to a following a particular teacher. And in many ways, Jesus' discipleship that he sets out is very similar. But there are other ways in which it is really very, very different. And it's worth just thinking about a few of those things. One thing, uh, rabbis were usually very, very selective about who they would choose. You had to be very, very bright, you know, very clever, very devoted, somebody who'd you know, been gone to Sunday school from a very, very early age. They wouldn't just let anybody sit and follow them. And yet Jesus called all sorts to follow him, whether it was a humble fisherman like Peter, maybe it was a tax collector like Matthew himself, who's written our gospel, somebody who was very wealthy and uh, in with the Romans, through to, frankly, terrorists like Simon the Zealot, who were fighting against Roman rule. Jesus called all kinds of people. And actually, that's reflected in the pattern that he gives us, isn't it? Did you notice that in uh, verse 19, it said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is not simply in the business of drawing people like him to be his disciples. And so we shouldn't be simply wanting to draw people like us. To follow him. It's very tempting, isn't it, to look around and think, oh, who would I get on with? Who, who might I like to be friends with or be part of Trinity and his church? But actually, that's not the plan of Jesus. Jesus' plan is for people of all nations, all backgrounds, that means, all different types of people. Jesus is interested in everyone. For another thing, uh, Jesus called his disciples to a life of unconditional obedience. Rabbis often did similar things. They would say to their, their followers, well, you've got to you know, follow my, my, uh, my instructions. But it would only be for the period under which they, for, for which um, the, uh, the disciples would be, would be following them. So at the end of their period of study, they would be released from their, their commitments uh, and off they could go and, and essentially, I suppose, do what they like. Not so with Jesus. Jesus calls us, in fact, to a lifetime of following his commands. We don't um, graduate away from them 
I'm ashamed to confess it, but when I was at Theological College, um, we were, there was a, a, a rule that was pretty, for, pretty strictly enforced that we had to go to chapel every time there was a chapel service. And they used to threaten us with, well, you won't get ordained if it doesn't happen. Not a, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's really the motive that you should be having to go to chapel, but never mind, that, that was it. And I'm ashamed to confess that for a lot of my time at Theological College, I struggled with, with this particularly. It wasn't quite so bad when I lived in college and I could stumble down sort of semi-comatose at 8 o'clock in the morning and mutter my way through morning prayer. But it was a real issue when I came to live out of college and had a lengthy bus journey to get there. And often, I'm ashamed to say, I used to console myself with the thought, well, it's not for much longer. At this point, you're going to be ordained, and then it'll all finish. Now, subsequently, I've realised that it was a good thing to go to chapel, and actually that it was trying to teach me something that was very, very important. And in some senses, I think it can be a little bit like us and Jesus. We sometimes think, well, I'll do this for a little bit, and then, well, uh, you know... It'll stop. That's not the way that Jesus works. When Jesus gives commands, he wants us to follow them for a lifetime. And curiously, more than that, we find that when we start to obey him, as the prayer book used to put it, his service is perfect freedom. Actually, as we submit to Jesus, we find in him a joy that nothing else can bring. Eventually, actually, as I got to the end of my studies, I began to take real joy in chapel and see why it was so important that we committed to going to it. And as we commit to Jesus and as we submit to him, so we can find that joy and that freedom. The truth sets us free, doesn't it? And once again, that's reflected, isn't it, in the plan that Jesus gives for us. Did you see that? In verse 20, he says, teach people to obey everything that I have commanded you. We need to teach people because actually if we don't teach them, then they won't know Jesus' instructions, do they? And Jesus' discipleship involves obeying him whatever he says, and no matter how hard it is. Most distinctive of all, however, Jesus called his disciples to a relationship. Lots of ancient teachers called their pupils to follow their teachings or their particular political cause, whatever it happened to be. But none of them called their disciples to be in a relationship with them. Apparently, the the last words of Buddha, when his uh, followers asked him, you know, how would he like to be remembered? He said... Don't remember me, remember my teachings. That's not what Jesus would say at all. Because actually, for Jesus, Christianity rests on the person of the Lord Jesus. It's not about following rules, it's about a relationship with him. It's no wonder the disciples were so distraught after Jesus' death back in uh, a few chapters ago. They, They had lost, or so they thought, their dearest friend, the person they'd spent the last three years with living with, learning from. And no wonder they worshipped him, we're told in verse 17, when they saw him. Because they loved him. They had a relationship with him. And ultimately, being a disciple of the Lord Jesus is about knowing him personally and accepting that forgiveness from sin that only he can give. Jesus is the only person who can offer our greatest need, forgiveness of sin, that separation from God that all of us know and have experienced. Jesus is the only person who, in his death and resurrection, has bridged that gap, has, can offer us the forgiveness that we need. That, I think, is a, as explains actually why Jesus lays such a stress on baptism in discipleship here. I've often wondered that. 
I guess from, probably I'm not alone in this. Many churches tend to downplay baptism. We, we, whenever I've heard sermons on this passage, I've often heard people um, laboring on the go and make bit. And I think that's, that, that's true, and that's right. But they've never really talked about the baptism bit. And I think the reason, one of the reasons at least, why Jesus lays such a stress on baptism as being an important part of discipleship, indeed a vital part, is because actually the New Testament tells us that it's baptism with genuine faith that is the sign and the start of this relationship. Paul's words in, uh, in Romans 6 help us to understand that. He says these words. Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That is why baptism is so important. It's not just something that it's for a few, few special people. It is for all those who would call themselves disciples of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean for us this morning at Holy Trinity? Well, I think, firstly, if we would wish to make disciples, we must first be disciples ourselves. For some this morning, the response that Jesus' plan demands is to commit ourselves to following him, whether that's for the first time or maybe that's um, something we need to do again. We, We committed ourselves at some point in the past, but we know that we've drifted away from him. You can't say that Jesus doesn't want me. He calls everyone. He says he wants to make disciples of all nations. Whatever your background, whatever your intellectual capabilities, whatever your interests, whatever you're from, whatever your situation this morning, the Lord Jesus wants you as a disciple. He's calling you. And for some, that will be your response. You need to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus before we can even make them. I guess for most of us, though, the challenge is simply to recommit ourselves to the task. Uh, when I was at Theological College, one of our best lecturers was Michael Green, a dear saint who used to be rector of uh, St. Aldate's in Oxford. And um, one of his best lectures, was, he did a series on mission. And I remember he started by saying, one of the, one of the things he said was, the, it's uh, not the great suggestion, but the great commission. And actually it's true, isn't it, that for much of church history, it has been the great suggestion. Well, that's how we treated it. This is an optional extra. We can do this if we fancy it. It's not like that. Jesus says, this is what we do. If you worship the Jesus who gives this command, then you and I have a duty to make him known. And we can't simply say it's the person next to me's responsibility, or the church down the road, or Nicky Gumbel, or Rico Tice, or whoever else you want to put in the boxes. It's our responsibility. The Lord Jesus calls us to make disciples this morning. Secondly, our uh, second uh, thing to draw out this morning. Jesus gives us a promise to encourage. I'm with you always. Look at verse uh, 20 with me towards the end. Jesus says this, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. One of my uh, old vicars was very fond of quoting a chap called F.R. Maltby, who I've never worked out who he was, but he said these words. He said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. And that pretty much sums up the New Testament experience of church, and actually much of church history, if you read through, and including the present. Following and speaking for Jesus has never been easy, and frankly, it never will be. We're deluded if we think it will be. And I expect the disciples were absolutely quaking 
as they'd heard these words. Can you just imagine it? Picture yourself there. Oh my goodness, what has he said? And yet no sooner has Jesus given his command than he gives us a glorious promise. Whatever the disciples faced, they could be sure that he would be there too. And that's exactly what we see in Acts, which is the next part of the, uh, the, the story for the church. And it's exactly what we see through church history. People can testify time and time again how the Lord Jesus has been there. He is with us always. I think the passage suggests that there are two particular aspects to um, Jesus' promise. Firstly, it's a promise of resurrection presence. Have a look at verse um, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, Jesus' authority has been won by his death, and it has been signed and sealed in his resurrection. He is the King of Kings. That is the story of the kingdom of God and the gospel. He is the King of Kings who rules over all the earth. And then to his disciples, that authority is given. How on earth can the mission fail with such a backer? The resurrected Lord Jesus, who comes in his resurrected power and authority to bring others to himself. So firstly, a promise of a resurrection presence. But secondly, it's also a promise of an abiding presence, isn't it? Look down at um, verse 20. Jesus says, And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus is about to return to the Father from where he has come. And though he was about to return, he had already promised to the disciples that by his Spirit, he wouldn't desert them. He'd always be with them. You can read that, particularly in John chapter 14. Uh, That's a a wonderful passage to meditate on. Uh, He uses that phrase, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to run off and leave you like other people might do. I will be with you always. The disciples could be confident that they could face anything with the Lord Jesus at their side. It's striking, isn't it, that Matthew's Gospel, you remember this from Christmas, starts with Emmanuel, God with us. And that is exactly how it ends. Emmanuel, God with us, by his Spirit, the Lord Jesus will never leave us. Uh, There's a story told about the um, famous missionary David Livingstone, who was, um, during the course of his missions, was awarded an honorary degree by uh, Glasgow University. And he came to collect his degree in front of a great crowd of people. And they were amazed to see what kind of a state he was in. You can imagine that years of life on the mission fields in, in Africa, uh, being racked by, by disease and all kinds of um, trials, had taken its toll on him. He was frail, he was gaunt, and in a pretty uh, rough state. Eventually, a member of the audience plucked up the courage to ask him, Mr. Livingston, how have you managed to last this long? You know, how do you keep going? You know, the implication is you're almost about to drop. And apparently David Livingstone's answer was simply, it was this. Lo, I'm with you always. On these words, he said, I staked everything, and they never failed. Well, I guess we're unlikely to face possible death from disease or other possible sources for speaking of the Lord Jesus. And yet we know, I know, it is still difficult, isn't it? I found this sermon very hard to prepare, I confess. It is always hard to speak of Jesus, and it's even harder to encourage you to speak of Jesus. Whether it's our own timidity, our own fear of what other people will think, maybe we feel we're not 
um, worthy of speaking for Jesus or whatever it happens to be, they're all stumbling blocks, aren't they, to us going and taking the message of the Lord Jesus out. And yet, along with David Livingstone, even though we might not face at all what really what he faced, we can rely on the promise of the Lord Jesus. I am with you always. That presence of Jesus himself as we proclaim him and his power to change hearts. Another missionary story for you this morning as we close. Um, Hudson Taylor, apparently, was travelling by uh, a fishing boat from Shanghai to uh, Ningpo. And whilst he was on the journey, a Chinese boy fell overboard. Uh, Taylor was absolutely horrified, naturally, and asked the crew to, uh, to stop, the, uh, stop the boat and throw a line overboard to, uh, to haul him in. The crew refused. Nobody quite sure why. They just refused to do it. Despite all of uh, Taylor's, um, Taylor's pleas, they refused. Uh, the event made a massive impression on him. I said, well, it might do. And he wrote some time later to a friend um, of the event, and he said these words, which I think are quite interesting. We condemn these fishermen, saying they were guilty of a man's death because they could so easily have saved that boy, and they didn't. But what of the millions whom we leave to perish, and that eternally? If we take Jesus' words seriously, the words in this passage and elsewhere, those who don't know the Lord Jesus are facing eternity without him. The Bible doesn't tell us much about what that looks like. All we know is it will be horrendous. A life without God, separated away from him, and for eternity. That is, gives an urgency to the task that I think almost nothing else can match. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, and we believe what he says, we have to take him seriously at his call. We're not playing games. This is a mission for the kingdom. People's lives are at stake. Eternity hangs on our actions and our attitude to what Jesus says in these words. The urgent obedience of the kingdom of God this morning is that we tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's too important not to. The question, I guess, for us is what is stopping us? Um, All of us, I'm sure, will know that fear. That moment comes, we can just say something about Jesus and what he's done for us. And the words just won't quite come. And then you think about ten minutes later what you might have said. We all know that, don't we? That fear of, uh, of other people. What will they think? Will we lose their friendship? Will they think I'm a bad colleague? Will they not want to hang around me anymore? Whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's busyness. For some of us, I guess, and I have to say this is something I feel particularly convicted about, sometimes I think I'm too busy to tell others of Jesus. Or worse, I'm so busy that I don't really know any non-Christians properly enough with a relationship that's deep enough in order to have that relationship to tell them about what Jesus has done. And that's a challenge, I guess, for quite a lot of us, isn't it? It's very easy to get so involved in church that we don't really know people outside of church to uh, call uh, Jesus to. It is a new church year, we've said about that, and we are going to be starting Christianity Explored this term again. We've run it for for a number of uh, terms, and we're going to be doing that again. My challenge to you this morning is why not ask the Lord Jesus to put somebody on your heart to invite to Christianity Explored this term. Maybe it is a work colleague who has been asking you about what you do at the weekend and seems to be showing some kind of interest in church. Maybe it's that person you know at Zumba class or or play squash with who quite often seems to say there's something a little bit different about you. What, What is it? 
you know, what, what, what is it that, that, that is, is driving you? Maybe it's that family member who, I don't know, has been sort of a little bit antagonistic to Christianity over the past, but always keeps asking questions. You know the sort of people I mean. Why not ask the Lord to lay on your heart somebody that you can be inviting and be praying for this term? It'd be amazing to see what he asks. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. Don't pray it if you don't want the answer. But it is a wonderful prayer to pray. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how God answers it. Maybe simply for some of us, as we close, there is simply a need for the Lord to renew our vision and warm our hearts. It's striking, isn't it, in these verses, that the pattern seems to be, verse 17, they see Jesus and they worship him, and then they go. And I guess for some of us, what we will need this morning is the Lord just to warm our hearts with a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus who has given himself for us and who promises to be with us. For some, that will be what needs to be. And I, let me encourage you, as we gather around the Lord's table, to come with open, expectant hearts that the Lord Jesus will touch you and will, will, will inflame in you a passion for taking his gospel to those around us. As we close, why don't we pray? I'm conscious that none of us can stand here and say that we have got this right, least of all me. These are hard words of the Lord Jesus, and we need his help to carry them out. So let's take a moment, shall we, just to be quiet as we respond. We are going to come around the Lord's table. And as we gather, let's uh, pray that Jesus would give us a fresh vision of himself and a fresh heart for making him known to those around us. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Lord Jesus, we, we want to see you this morning. We want fresh visions of you as we gather around, as we are spiritually fed by, your, uh, by the bread and the wine and by your word. Lord, we long for you to warm our hearts. We know that so often we are cold, we are indifferent to the call of taking your name to those around us. And yet, Lord, we know it is so important. Eternity hangs on it. Lord, help us, we pray. Give us each somebody we can be praying for, somebody we can be inviting this term for Christian Explored, somebody that we can be uh, speaking of you to. And help us, we pray, not just to make this something that we do for this term, but that for all of us at Trinity, the call of the Great Commission would be our drive from this day on forever and ever. Amen. Amen.